Hey, I'm Pastor Chris, and the teaching or conversation that you're about to hear is from the student ministry at Cedar Crest Bible Fellowship Church. If you have any questions or you'd like to get into contact with us, please visit us on our website at cedarcrest.church forward slash students. Now I pray that God would use this resource to richly bless you in your walk with him. actually take a pretty big chunk of John, but it's because it's a, a, an account and you can't really stop it in the middle. Last time we studied John together, which I think was in end of 2020, we were in chapter 3, which began with Jesus speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. More on what a Pharisee is a little later. He had sought Jesus out late at night, presumably to avoid scrutiny from his peers uh, because they were kind of threatened by Jesus. And Jesus tells him that you have to be born again in order to make it to the post-life kingdom of God. Nicodemus takes Jesus literally, as people often do, and he misses the deeper meaning, and he's like, How are we, how's a grown man supposed to re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? That's not happening. Jesus clarifies that he's saying, I'm talking about an inner spiritual being rebirth that you have to undergo to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells Nicodemus, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Beautiful. Succinct. After that, Jesus goes out into the countryside and he's baptizing people and more and more people are flocking to him. He is gaining a huge following. And John the Baptist, different than the guy who wrote the book of John, and we were introduced to him in chapter 1, he's out there too. He's baptizing and telling people about the kingdom. And John is humble, unlike the Pharisees, and he's not jealous of Jesus. And when his own disciples come to him and say, you know, John, Jesus is getting a lot more shine than you these days. What do you think about that? John says, he who comes from above is above all. He must increase. I must decrease. So that's the, the immediate context of the chapter before. Helpful to know that before we get into tonight's passage. Kind of puts it in context. And I want to give you a little bit more context before we actually read it. So, so bear with me here. The Pharisees, which we'll see in a couple verses here, were not humble like John the Baptist. They were religious leaders with quasi-political sway in first century Jewish society. And they were very jealous of Jesus. Jesus finds out that they've heard more people are following him than even John, who they were already jealous of. And he doesn't really want to deal with them right now. In other words, they don't want no smoke. I'm trying to be cool here. Um, so he leaves the territory of Judea, and he heads for the territory of Galilee. Now, Galilee is about as far from Judea as Allentown is from New York. It's about 90 miles. To get to Galilee, the shortest route required him and the disciples to pass through another territory called Samaria, which is about as far as we are from Reading, maybe 30 to 40 miles. But... And this is, if you didn't know this and you read this passage, it would be totally lost on you. Samaria was not a place most Jews would go. Why's that? Many first century Jews felt intense racial prejudice towards Samarians. And the reason for that is 960 years previous, in 930 BC, King Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. And, and he became king of Israel after Solomon died. Now, Rehoboam was really dumb, really dumb guy. He was a fool. 
and he taxed the people heavily, and he forced slave labor. There were these older, wiser guys that were like, probably shouldn't do that, that might cause civil war. And he's like, mm, my friend said I should do it, I'm going to do it. He does it. This leads to intense uh, societal strife and unrest that got so bad that the country splits in two. Now, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Ten tribes in the north become their own country, and they call it the kingdom of Israel. Their capital was Samaria, where we're going to be tonight. Two tribes in the south, which were Judah and Benjamin, they split off, and they became known as the kingdom of Judah. If you're like me, you're probably wondering, why not the kingdom of Benjamin? That would have been cooler. Reason for that is Judah was bigger. It was more dominant. Uh, so that's how it was. Kingdom of Judah is those two tribes. This now divided nation coexists, though often engaged in civil war, for about 200 years. For the people who don't like history, I know this is probably grueling. But it's, it's really important. Stick with me. Until 721 BC. It's a very important date in biblical history. A powerful enemy nation called the Assyrians wiped the kingdom of Israel off the map. Uh, in part because it was a judgment from God. Because the kingdom of Israel had forsaken the Lord. And the Jews who were left up there eventually start uh, marrying and having children with the non-Jewish people who migrated into the land. Now, the Jews in the south already thought of northern Jews as treasonous. Now they view them as doubly treasonous because they think that they're corrupting their pure Jewish bloodline. So for almost a thousand years, you have Jews in the south hating Jews half Jew, half other sorts of ethnicity people in the north. There's this deep-rooted racism going on here. And so that's, all of that baggage heavily influences what we are about to read, and we're going to see how Jesus conducts himself. So we'll read the passage, I'll walk you through what's happening, and then we'll make a couple of applications. So let's pray. Our Father, as we said before, it is just so refreshing to open up your word and listen to your voice for a little bit and, and mute button all the other voices um, and just listen to you. I pray that you give us ears that are attentive, that we would hear your voice, that you would refresh our spirits. And Lord, for people in here who don't know you yet, who are dying of a dehydration of sorts, that you would wake them up out of that and give them the living water that is Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit. We ask for your help now in this time, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 4, 1 through 42, it reads this way. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's more biblical history. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I... I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you see? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. They're like, secret snacks? What? So the disciples <laughs> said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, no, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Awesome passage. And I hope as we, as we kind of linger on some of these verses, it'll, it'll grip you the way that it gripped me this week. Because there's just some really cool stuff in here. So let your eye trace the page back to verse 6. And we'll just walk through this quickly here. Jesus and his disciples, they arrive in a town of the, the territory of Samaria. And it's called Sychar around noon. Which, if you know a little bit about the Middle East and geography, it would be the hottest time of the day. And so the disciples leave, and they go to buy food in the city. Now, they've walked about 30 miles at this point, 
And Jesus is weary, and he's thirsty. And so he sits beside a well, wanting a drink. Now, wells were not like faucets. They uh, are deep. The water is deep under the ground. And you had to have a bucket on a rope to draw the water up. Jesus had not packed one. So in verse 7, a woman from Samaria comes to the well to draw water. And Jesus does something very controversial for that time. He engages in conversation with her, asking for a drink. It's, it's lost on our modern ears, but this is an astonishing break from tradition and culture, and it shows his desire to save the lost. Not only was it against cultural norms for men to speak with women they didn't know in public like that, but now he, a Jew, is speaking with her, a Samaritan. And if you look at verse 9, she is, she's shocked. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's, she's flabbergasted. Verse 10, Jesus says this to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's saying, if you knew, one, the gift of God, which later in John we learn is the Holy Spirit, and two, who you were talking to, you'd ask me for a different kind of water. The woman probably does a double take. You don't have a canteen. You're not wearing a camelback backpack. What are you talking about? You have no water. Verse 13, Jesus explains that what he is talking about is different from physical water. When you drink physical water, what happens to you? It, your, your thirst is quenched? Yes, you do it because you're thirsty. Your thirst is quenched. You're not thirsty again. But you do get thirsty again in a little bit. When you drink the living water that Jesus is talking about, or more accurately, he's talking about himself, it quenches our deepest kind of thirst now and forever, even beyond death. And this water, it starts deep within us like a spring in our, during our natural lives, but eventually it bubbles up to its fullest realization of eternal life. Meaning the day that you die, we enter into the full experience of eternal life which is knowing God, which we've only begun to taste here. Snap back to verse 15. She's still not getting it. She's thinking that Jesus is offering her some sort of magical convenience so she won't have to do the chore of going down to the well every day. Uh, so Jesus kind of, he segues to her deeper need. And he's about to bring to light the destructive life pattern that she has been living in and trying to keep in the dark. So verse 16, he tells her to go get her husband and come back. She answers curtly, meaning like very shortly and defensively and says, I have no husband. Probably looking to change the topic because she wasn't trying to talk about this with Jesus. But Jesus is about to blow her mind here. He's never met her before. He's a stranger from out of town. He did not stalk her on Sumerian social media or secretly gather intel on her. But he is God. And so he knows everything about her. Even the deepest, darkest, shameful secrets of her soul. The deepest pain that might have caused her to be the way that she was as an adult. He knows all that. And so he says in verse 17b. You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
I just imagine her, her jaw must have dropped, right? This is a stranger. How in the world does he know this about me? That I've had five husbands, that I'm now currently living with someone who is not my husband. How does he know that? As just a little aside, um, this verse here is how we know that according to Jesus, merely living together does not constitute a marriage. He says, the one you now have is not your husband. Marriage requires some kind of official sanction and public ceremony at which a man and a woman commit to the obligations of marriage, and then the community they're a part of recognizes that a marriage has begun. So according to God, before you are intimate with someone and live together, you must solemnly enter into a marriage covenant before God. And I encourage you to take that to heart. Wait for marriage to have sex and to live with someone God's way is better, and it'll shield you from so, so much heartache. But what about if you've already sinned here? Well, let's keep reading, because this account is about someone just like that. Verse 19, when she gets past the shock of what Jesus has said, she assumes he must be some sort of a Jewish prophet, right? And then she brings up a common dispute that Sumerians had with Jews, where one should worship. Jesus tells her in verses 21 through 24 that that topic will soon be obsolete. It won't matter anymore because God will initiate a new era at the cross where true worshipers of his will be able to authentically worship from anywhere, provided they do so in spirit and in truth, meaning worshiping empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, who guides us into all truth. John 16, 13. Then look at verses 25 and 26. The woman shows that she has some awareness of what the scriptures say. She affirms that she knows the Messiah, or the anointed one, who would save the world, was coming. Jesus, having astonished her once already, is about to dwarf his first bit of supernatural insight with some astounding news. He says to her, you know the Messiah is coming? I who speak to you am he. I just imagine chills running up her spine. She's like, oh, who am I I speaking with? This is insane. Verses 27 through 30. Jesus is, uh, we take a little break from the main narrative. Jesus' disciples return, and they're surprised that he was breaking social norms by talking to a woman, but they don't really say anything about it. Jesus, uh, or the woman's day and her life has been completely changed. Though she had gone to the well to draw water, she now leaves her jar there empty. Um, And she goes into the town to beckon any who will listen to come meet this Jesus. This woman who has had five husbands plus a current boyfriend likely has a less than noble reputation around town. And because of such, has probably kept to herself out of shame a lot. She's now gathering the town together because what she has found is life changing. Now, verses 31 through 38, we're kind of going to gloss over that, though there's a lot of good stuff there. So while the people of the town are coming out, the disciples come back, um, and there's a little conversation. The disciples are focused on, don't you want to eat lunch? Jesus is like, my food is to do the will of the Father. Uh, Lunch can wait. And then he talks about how those who busy themselves with the Father's business can be sure that their heavenly bank account is filling up. Riches that they will enjoy forever in the next everlasting life. I love thinking about that. It's super motivating for living this Christian life because it's very hard sometimes. But Jesus incentivizes us with the treasure that we are accruing in heaven. 
Um, and, that's, and that's a good thing to think about. And then verses 39 through 42, it's the epilogue of this account. Many Samaritans put their faith in Jesus because of the woman's testimony and Jesus' word. The woman and the town realize that they have just encountered the Savior of the world. So that's what's happened here in the story. I hope maybe that um, sheds some light on some of the little harder to understand aspects. I want to share four applications that, that I drew from this text that the Lord showed me as I was studying it. The first one is this. Jesus knows about the hidden sins we struggle with and wants to lovingly confront and free us. When Jesus began speaking with this woman, he wasn't seeking to make small talk, chit chat, or, or just ask a favor. He was seeking her. He was on a mission to shed light on the lifestyle that was keeping her in spiritual bondage, free her and save her. He asked her to bring her husband and probably she had like this moment of internal panic, like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And she was trying to change the topic to keep that part of her life in the dark. But Jesus loved her too much to leave it alone. He, being God, created this woman, knew everything about her, um, in a sense had watched her all her life, because we know the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the whole earth, the Old Testament tells us. And he now confronts her about her sexual immorality. And he did this because he knew her sin had cut her off from God, and he wanted her to be reconciled to him. And this is because that is the human heart's greatest need, whether you know that or not. Jesus knows about the hidden sins you and I struggle with, and he wants to confront you about it and save you from it, because it's poisoning you. It is cheating you of enjoying what can truly satisfy your soul. If you're not a Christian tonight, that sin is the reason you are guilty before God. And it's only a matter of time before you are caught and convicted. While you have your natural life, you are on the run, so to speak. Living a life that is outrageously offensive and wicked to your holy creator, God. I know it doesn't feel like that because it's the air we've always breathed. But it is that to God. And death is like a cop that will catch you. And then you will meet God the judge. And though in your natural life there was a plea deal you could have made to have escaped your fate, it is too late now. And he will judge you as you are, guilty, and pronounce on you an eternal life sentence in the fiery prison of punishment, hell. Jesus knew that that fate awaited this woman, if nothing were to change. And he knows, he knows that that awaits us if we don't change. And so he seeks us. Hear Jesus, hear Jesus through this text tonight saying to you, what are you holding on to that you won't let go of to have me? Is it vanity? Do you live for the high of people's approval, thirsting for approval on social media or perhaps by wearing revealing clothing? Is it sexual immorality with a girlfriend, boyfriend, or on your own? Is it living to eat, living to play video games, to play sports, watch sports? Is it academic success and, and money? Is that what you live for? Are you discontent with where you are and pining for the future? Do you live to gossip? Are you holding on to bitterness towards other people and possibly God? Are you fearful of what following God could cost you? Will you not forsake comfort and convenience to do what you know God wants you to do? 
If we live for anything, treasuring, valuing, enjoying that thing more than God, we are sinning. And Jesus knows it already. He knows the intricacies of the deepest, darkest parts of our lives already. And he's calling us to repent of that, to confess it to God, to be sorry for it, to ask for his forgiveness and cleansing and follow him. My brothers, my sisters, God loves you. See how gently Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. If you know you aren't living for Jesus, you are in grave danger tonight. And many of the comforts of the Bible do not apply to you, at least not yet, though I hope with all my being that they will. And for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this promise from uh, Psalm 103 and be comforted. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, meaning scold, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, which is an eternal distance, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As we are thinking about our, our sin and the ways that we offend God and trip up all the time, and I do too, we all do, it's, it's our human condition. Remember that you have a father who loves you. And just like I don't, I don't you know, read Jameson, my 14-month-old, out when he trips up or when he throws his milk on the ground, <laughs> he's learning. You and I are learning. When the father sees us trying to walk this walk and we stumble, he loves us and he has compassion on us and he helps us get back up. And keep going. I love this verse. I encourage you to, to internalize it one day. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. When you've sinned and you feel just your conscience contaminated, preach that verse to yourself. If I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive it, cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. And confess any sin that you might be hiding tonight to God and reconcile with him. That's the first point that we can gather from this passage. Secondly, racism or ethnic prejudice is wrong. And it has no place in a believer or anyone's life. And it's more than that. It's not enough for a heart to be merely void of antagonism towards other ethnicities. We ought to have hearts that are filled with love for all people, and seek their salvation. This text does not explicitly say that, but when we observe Jesus and understand the historical context here, I think it's really clear. So here's Jesus. He's born, and ethnically, he's a Jew. And here is this woman, born of Samaria. The bad blood between these two ethnicities is deeper and older than anything we've experienced in America, as real and awful as that still is. But that has absolutely no influence on Jesus, who is perfect. He's sinless. And he's created every ethnicity in the precious image of God. And he loves all people. Now, most Jews, if they weren't being outwardly nasty to Samaritans, they would have at least done the dehumanizing thing of pretending they don't exist, certainly not engaging with her in conversation, and definitely not caring for her eternal well-being. 
But Jesus engages with her, is kind to her, shows love to her. He's our model. He's who we're trying to be like. What does the word say? Colossians 3, 5 through 14 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Check this verse out. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, that's another type of people group, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one's got a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now in verse 11, which I want us to think about where he says, here there is no Greek or Jew and so on. It's talking of unity, but this is not to negate uh, culture and say that we should just be this homogenous society that fails to appreciate all the beautiful things about our different diverse cultures. God made us that way and our, with our own traditions and cultural nuances. And because we're all made in the image of God, we all reflect aspects of his character. And, and we should appreciate that. It's a beautiful thing. I want to encourage you, uh, especially those of us from, from majority culture, don't cheat yourself of seeing more of God's image by only associating with people who look like you. Associate with people, believers of all ethnic backgrounds. You will see more of God that way. And it's what God wants. So let's learn from Jesus here that not only is, is racism wrong, uh, just refraining from outward nastiness towards people who are different than you is not enough. Because a lot of Jews did that. They would just ignore Samaritans. Ignoring people is a quiet kind of nastiness. We must love, seek, and engage with people from all backgrounds. Let's look at Jesus in this passage. See how he just totally throws aside these worldly distinctions and that sort of worldly hatred for people just because they're different. And let's love people. Third point. God uses our testimony and his word, which we preach, to cause lost people to believe in him and so be saved. Look at verses 39 and 41. I think you'll find this freeing. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. What did she say? He told me all that I ever did. 41. And many more believed because of his word. This woman was likely not a scholar uh, or a highly capable orator, speaker. But what she is, or was, was faithful to share what had happened to her, what Jesus had done for her. And God used that to draw many people in the town to himself. My encouragement to you is share what God has done in your life. Share what the Bible says. Don't be afraid. What did this woman say? What was her, her grand message to the town? Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Simple. You don't have to follow a formula. You don't have to expertly convey Genesis through Revelation. It really doesn't depend on you or me like that. As God gives you opportunities, 
Share portions of your testimony, whether that's how God saved you or how he's worked in your life since, that'll be relevant for that person. If I'm speaking to a young man or uh, you know, someone who's struggling with addiction to pornography, then I would share with them, I was addicted to pornography in high school and college. God freed me from that. He showed me that Jesus is more pleasurable than sin, and it liberated me. Or if I'm speaking with someone who's brokenhearted, I can testify to how I went through a really horrible breakup once, and God healed my broken heart. Your testimony is tailor-fit to speak to certain people in this world. And God doesn't tell you who those people are. You just have to be faithful to share. And on the flip side, you don't have to despair if your life experiences don't quite enable you to reach or minister to other people. That's not, that, that is okay. You might not be God's solution to that person's problem. You are an instrument in God's hand that needs to only concern yourself with playing your song every day and let God decide who that touches. Now, by all means, when you have the chance, share the whole gospel message because that's the song that every single set of ears needs to hear. I just don't want you to refrain from speaking because you're afraid you'll miss something. Just be faithful to talk about God, what he's done for you, what the word says, and he will work through you like he works through the simple message of this woman. And as verses 35 through 38 say, we can leave it to God to determine who lays the groundwork and who gets to be there when a person puts their faith in Jesus. We just concern ourselves with faithfully speaking. Last point. Jesus offers to quench our soul's thirst with living water. John 4.10 and 14. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus saying here as we come to the end? The gift of God refers to God himself. That is God's gift to you, himself. Specifically in the form of the Holy Spirit. Living water is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. So in what sense is Jesus then saying we are thirsty? What does that mean? It means this. Before we know God, our souls have sucked down the salt water of sin, shriveled to the brink of hell, and are parched. We are cut off from the refreshing presence of God, in danger of damnation, trying to find refreshment in all the wrong places, and are parched and dying of spiritual dehydration as a result. Or if we're saved already, perhaps we've just once again guzzled down the salt water of sin and find ourselves thirsty. That discontentment you feel is a thirstiness of the soul. Jesus is saying to you tonight, ask me for the living water and I will quench your soul's thirst. If you're not following Jesus, do that, and your thirst will be quenched for all of post-life eternity and can be quenched even now. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, hell is described as a place of thirsty agony and fire. And while we are here on this earth, and this is for non-believers, you are dying of thirst because you were made for God, and yet you are rejecting him. And you are in danger of being damned to a doom of eternal dehydration. So I implore you, ask God for the living water. If you are already saved, Jesus is saying your eternal satisfaction in the next life 
is sure. It is secure. You will never be thirsty again then. And though you will thirst at times in this life, because, you know, we yet sin, we can ask Jesus once again, and he will give us an ice-cool canteen of living water. In other words, a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to sustain us as we sojourn through the desert of this life homeward. Jesus is who will satisfy your soul. He is your exceeding joy. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. So how do we receive this living water? How do we get that? We come to terms with this reality. We were made by God, for God, but we rebelled, becoming morally corrupt. God is pure and holy, and to be in his presence and intimate with him requires perfect purity of life. And because God is just, he must punish us for our crimes, and the nature and duration of the punishment must fit the crimes. We've offended an eternal, unimaginably pure God, and so the sentence is eternal and unimaginably awful. But God loves us so much that while we were yet his enemies, he sent Jesus Christ to save us. Jesus lived a morally perfect life, the kind we could never live in our place so that he could gift that to us. Jesus died on the cross for us, bearing God's hell wrath on our behalf. Jesus was buried as all dead men are, and yet three days later resurrected as only God and those reanimated by God can. Now, if you confess your wrongs to God, ask for forgiveness, and believe that he and all he has done is enough to save you, you will be saved. He'll forgive your sins, He'll gift you with his moral purity so you can confidently live before God here and hereafter. He'll give you the gift of eternal life so you don't have to fear death. And he will reconcile you to himself and dwell inside you in the form of the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to receive the soul-quenching living water. He is that living water. Ask for him tonight. Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. For the believers in this room, we trust that you refreshed many of us. Thank you for the living water. God, for those in this room who don't know you, who don't even, who are known to the reality that they are dying of spiritual dehydration, I pray that you'd wake them up tonight. I pray that they would turn to you and say, Jesus, give me the living water. Satisfy and save my soul. God, we love you. 